hundreds of thousands hold their breath on Merseyside. It's Xabi Alonso for 3-3, it's saved, and Alonso follows it in! It's wonderful! It's marvellous! And welcome along, this is The Red Agenda, I'm Steve Hothersall and as always joined by James Pearce and Simon Hughes and on today's uh, Red Agenda we're going to mark the one year anniversary of number six what drove the Reds to finally get over the line in the Champions League and the knock-on effects of such a remarkable achievement and we'll find what memento James Pearce took from the wonder. Uh, also on the show, the young guns who represent the future, Harvey Elliott, close to signing a pro contract. Just how good is he going to be? Add that to the likes of Curtis Jones and Nico Williams. They're all in the mix. The future looks pretty bright. Just a couple of things on the agenda. Let's touch base with the boys. James, you OK? Not too bad, Steve. How are you? You OK? Yeah, very good. You're going to tell us a little bit later on what you took out of the wonder. Uh, I'm not sure whether that's the same for Simon. Welcome along, Simon. I, I wouldn't be so uh, so mischievous, Steve. <laughs> so no, I, 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 I didn't take anything from that crowd, apart from, apart from great memories. Yeah, I wonder whether there is a temptation for everyone just to take a little bit of nostalgia from a ground where something remarkable happens. Anyway, we'll get to that a little bit later on. Uh, we're going to start with, with Harvey Elliott. And um, and just how good is this youngster? Good piece that James has written on the Athletic site at the moment. He's he's setting all sorts of records. He's only made seven senior Liverpool appearances, but already massively whets the appetite, James. Yeah, it, it really does. I mean, it's hard to believe, really, that he's he only. Uh... He only turned 17 in, in April on the verge of signing his first pro deal with Liverpool that will time to the club till 2023. And um, yeah, it was a, a really enjoyable few days actually spent talking to a lot of coaches that have that have worked with him over the years and um, and kind of charting his rise. And, you know, because, of course, natural talent takes you a long way. But, you know, I think the, the thing that struck me from speaking to the people that have worked with him was just that drive and ambition and, and hunger to, to just keep on improving. You know, the, the fact that, you know, he, from when he was a very small kid every night out in that garden, you know, going around cones with a ball and using ladders that had been set out to work on different things. And, you know, when different coaches questioned whether he could handle certain things, that that appetite to go and work at it and prove them wrong. And, you know, that's led him to where he is now, which is, um, you know, it's... It's mouthwatering, really, to think what he could go on to achieve. He's, he's just on the verge, isn't he, Si, of a, of a pro contract. Um, he's made seven appearances already. Is it is it quite an easy thing to negotiate for Liverpool Football Club at this point and for the individual involved, 17 years old? Yeah, I mean, I think he obviously chose Liverpool ahead of other clubs. Um, that, that I liked about James's piece was the the revelation that he'd been to, uh, to Madrid to, to speak to Real and quite clearly already had Liverpool in his sights you know the great story there about how how they offered to introduce him to Sergio Ramos and he he, he reject, rejected that opportunity because of what Ramos had, had done a, a few weeks or months earlier to, to Mohamed Salah so he's you know he's a, he's a Liverpool fan first and foremost and he's chosen Liverpool ahead of other clubs and he's had exposure at a really young age to the first team uh, environment you know both training and playing he's at Melwoods you know uh, every day and you know I know he's he's really impressed some of the more experienced players I think the, the one big thing about him for me is um, he's, a, he's obviously a very skillful player very quick and direct but 
Uh, he, he seems to me to be quite fearless, really. I, I think that, um, and I know that that's sort of a common theme with young players when they're just burst onto the scene. But he, he, I remember the game against Arsenal in the League Cup, and he, he didn't have a great night that night, but he kept going, kept going. And he, he tried to get the fans on side. You know, he was he was sort of a bit of a cheerleader for the fans as as Liverpool got the got the victory and, and that got, you know sort of recovered from uh, being behind that game and, and took the game to penalties. And I remember he just kept going all the time. And I just think uh, he he you know that that'll set him in good stead because it's obviously a demanding cra- uh, fan base to play for. So yeah, I mean, I, I think it'd be pretty straightforward. You know, he only joined the club uh, less than a year ago. Uh, he wants to stay. He, he can see that there's a a pathway into the first team, which he's he's already followed already. It's just a case of him playing a bit more regularly. I mean, I'll just finish on the the, the point that Jurgen Klopp made a few few months ago now about you know when he's talking about being asked about signing somebody like Kylian Mbappe. He's obviously one of the best players I've seen at Anfield over the last couple of seasons. But he, he was saying, look, it's the responsibility of the club to try and find the, the next Kylian Mbappe. So that should encourage somebody like Harvey Elliott who, you know, is waiting for his chance to play, at, you know, first team level more regularly. So, yeah, I, I think certainly over the next two seasons, we, we'll see a lot more of him. It's quite interesting when you see how people describe him. So I think the Fulham boss, or the old Fulham boss, Slavisa Jukanovic, said, I don't know if it's the wrong word in English, but he's arrogant. And positive, but I think he said that in in the right way, James. And if if you look at Harvey Elliott, it's almost an addictive arrogance about his football. You, right, I spoke to Neil Critchley, who of course worked very closely with with Harvey over the course of this season till till Critchley left to join Blackpool back in uh, early March. And and he was saying it's he said it's not it's not arrogance in terms of cockiness or or being too big for his boots. He said it's just it's just confidence in his own ability, which he said. It is so important," he said. "As a coach, that is what you want to see in a player. You you don't want someone who's going to be inhibited by their surroundings or you know influenced by the crowd or anything. And you know he he was you know he he, he talked about even even that when he, when Harvey made his debut against MK Dons in the League Cup back in September. And if you remember rightly, I think I think he should have scored after about 10, 15 minutes that night. Um, he rattled the underside of the crossbar and. Probably, you know, it was a chance he he should have tucked away, but it just didn't even didn't even bother him. And you know, I think the other thing from speaking to coaches that work with him is, you know, they, you know, he's relatively small in terms of stature. You know, he's five foot seven, but yeah. the physical side of it, which again is such a key factor usually when we talk about young players that are coming through. You know, can they handle that that physicality? It, it's just not a problem for him. And I think. You know, again, a lot of people touched on the fact that he's always played against people much older than him. You know, he was at the age of fourteen. He was playing for Fulham under 18s He was, you know, he he made his his debut for for Fulham at a you know a ridiculously young age. And he was, you know, he, he's just always been around that environment. And yet, you know, sometimes he does take a bit of a kicking. But you know, he's not one of those who will roll around and and moan and groan and feel sorry for himself. He. You know, I think I think a few of his coaches spoke about it in the piece that he's very much got that kind of attitude of dusting himself off and and I'll show you I'll I'll, I'll get the better of you next time and um, yeah that's that's certainly going to stand him in very good stead. There is a tendency for people to talk about his size. You mentioned it there. With it, he's got balance. He's got the technical ability as well. But people then tend to draw comparisons with with greats like a Messi. You know, and say, can he get to that level? Has, has he got the technical ability? How do you interpret his size and him as a footballer side? I mean, you, you've got to judge it against, you know, against first team opposition, I think. I mean, 
I, I've got to be honest, I haven't seen too much of him for the under-23s. I don't think he's played that many games for the under-23s this season, but um, I'm always wary of sort of thinking too much into that because, you know, it's ultimately your football career is going to be defined by how you compete against, against you know, fully grown adults. And another game that stood out for me, which might surprise a few because uh, obviously the, the final score against Aston Villa in the League Cup was a bit of a crushing defeat, but he, he was obviously surrounded by teammates who, who were of a similar age to him in that game in the League Cup um, I think James must have been in um, in Qatar at that point but he, he, he really really gave Neil Taylor who's a you know experienced Welsh international a tough night that night you know he, he was being tested throughout the game you know every time he got the ball he was on the front foot and, 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 and caused him a lot of problems I remember him coming off the pitch because the press office uh, the press box sorry is, is right by the tunnel of Villa Park and Taylor looked absolutely shattered you know mm. um, so you know he, he had a real impact in that game and I, I, I think you know physically he's obviously he's, he's not he's not the smallest but he's, he's certainly not the biggest either he seems to be one of those sort of smaller players who, who, who opponents bounce off a little bit you know he's, he's, he's sturdy so I, you know I don't think he'll have too many problems with that I mean over the last sort of 10 15 years the game has become you know more varied in terms of the, the, the players sizes and physical abilities and all he needs to do really I, I think is, is watch closely how Mohamed Salah sort of turned himself into a very you know he's a small player very quick very direct but physically you know you can't knock him off the ball can you I mean I would say one of Salah's biggest strengths now is is when he's got the ball and it's it's his backs to goal you know you can't you can't shake him off so I think that's one area of his game you know can obviously improve in a lot of different areas but you know if if he wants a reference point as how to follow his career he should be watching everything that Salah does and, and obviously trying to do it better. I mean, in a, in a short space of time, he's already created a few memorable moments. And actually, you mentioned the Villa game and there's something that stood out in there for me. I don't know whether you remember it, Si. He, he chipped a ball into Isaac Christie Davis and it looked like a trick shot in snooker. <laughs> it, lo- it looked like he'd st- stubbed the snooker cue down and this ball sort of <laughs> flung round into the penalty area and you thought, that's just um, some sort of crazy technique that most players, 99% of players don't have in them. Yeah, well, he, he does seem to enjoy, you know, sort of being, a, a, I used that word before, a bit mischievous with some of the stuff that he tries. Yeah. You know, he's not afraid to sort of make a mistake and for things to not come off. But, you know, I, I've seen a lot of those things come off and I think the more the crowd see that and, and, and see, you know, it reminds me, he's not the same player, but Luis Garcia was a bit like that. Sometimes he'd try things and you're just like, what are you doing? But they'd know <laughs> that, you know, sort of six or seven times out of 10, you'd get an end product out of him. So people, are, well, you'll accept that, you know? So, yeah, I mean, he, he does have that bit of trickery in him, which... Um, which I think he needs in this Liverpool team as well because, you know, Jürgen Klopp doesn't mind a player, you know, if he shoots from distance or if he tries to make, like, sort of a outrageous pass. I know he sort of wants the team to be well-organised and play to a system, but I think up at the top of the pitch, there's still that acceptance that some players are going to be able to try and do some some mad things. And he's got, you know, he's got players like Firmino ahead of him, another player they can learn a lot from, you know, in terms of his movements and the way he uses the ball and and and, and brings other people into, into play. I mean, let's not forget, he's still 17 and I wouldn't expect him to play lots and lots and lots of games next season, but you'd expect him to play more games than he, he did last season. And each time I saw him play, he looked a better player, I think. So that, that can only encourage uh, people who are following Liverpool. So, James, in your piece, you're saying he was still doing his GCSEs 
<laughs> when Liverpool came in for him, it's surreal, really, isn't it? And and that interest from Real Madrid and a host of other big European clubs, it was real, wasn't it? It was tangible. Oh, 100%, yeah. I think, you know, it's... He, he wasn't one of those kids that was kind of plucked from under the radar. He was, you know, as, as long since been touted as as, as one of the, the finest English talents of his generation. So I think it was inevitable that you were going to have top clubs from all across Europe trying to trying to sign him. Um, yeah, as, as well as Real Madrid, you know, Paris Saint-Germain, Joaquin, Man City, Chelsea, Arsenal in uh, in this country as well. But um, yeah, I think certainly from speaking to people close to him, they said that. You know, there were certainly more lucrative proposals. You know, if that had been the motivation, he, he probably wouldn't have ended up at Liverpool. But there was a huge emotional pull for him. Um, you know, his, his dad is a is a lifelong Liverpool fan. Um, there were some great pictures in the article that we were able to use, thanks to the family who said that um, you know, he, Harvey's first trip to Anfield with his dad was in 2006, when he was only three years of age for um, Champions League qualifier against uh, Maccabi Haifa, which made me feel incredibly old thinking that <laughs> we've been watching a Liverpool player this season who was three years old uh, in 2006. But um, it was, you know, I think that emotional pull coupled with, you know, I think the other key thing was clearly Jurgen Klopp's track record of putting his faith in youth because, um, you know, I think if you're looking around Europe, I know I know the family considered the, the tale about Martin Odegaard, the Norwegian youngster, of course, probably four or five years ago now, had that choice between Liverpool and Real Madrid. He went to Real Madrid and he's you know, been out on loan at all kinds of clubs since and has only made one appearance for for Real in, in La Liga where you know you can trust that to the uh, the opportunities that Klopp has given young players. So, um, yeah, I think Liverpool just ticked all the boxes for him and his family. And the other interesting thing was the fact that, you know, him his entire family relocated from Surrey up to Liverpool, which, you know, doesn't always happen. I think, um, you know, quite often Liverpool put young players in digs with local families. and But, you know, I think that shows just how kind of committed his entire family are to helping him realise his dream. And I think they, they certainly feel as if, and the coaches feel as if that's contributed to him being able to make such a huge impact in his first season at the club. Yeah, and, and if we ever wanted convincing how passionate they are about Liverpool, the, the dog's called what, James? <laughs> yes, the uh, Harvey's French bulldog puppy is called Paisley after the uh, the legendary Liverpool boss. So, um, <laughs> so yeah, I, I, I was told that he's been. Um, I think of of late when he's been getting back from Melwood and and doing some extra training in the back garden, he's had uh, he's had Paisley snapping his heels in, in, instead of Virgil Van Dijk. Oi, Paisley, get in here! I, <laughs> I suppose to, to get the best out of the the next best thing, you have to have everything right around you. And it seems like the family have have looked at what the club can offer. So, Jurgen, the living conditions, the the senior players, things like that. Simon, that that are the influences what, that will make sure that he does stay on track because he is still so tender at, at age. Well, that's I mean, Liverpool are getting it right on a lot of levels at the moment, you know, both on and off the pitch. And when I say off the pitch, I don't mean in terms of everything that they do off the pitch. I mean, in terms of the way they treat players off the pitch and, and the organisation around the club. And, you know, I think now, you know, if you're a young player, they, you've got that that thing where the first team are performing very, very well to one of the highest standards, but young players can still see that there's opportunities there for them. Um, I mean, we've spoken about it a few times, but, you know, the player, I keep on thinking of Nico Williams and how this time last year, nowhere near the first team squad, not on the, 
US tour, you know, all the players selected ahead of him. But now, you know, if, if he were to fill in for Trent in a Premier League game, I don't think there'd be many grumbles or fears amongst the fan base when, when the team's announced. So I think it just shows the Klopp is, is willing to give opportunities, even to those who might have not been so highly fancied by some of the coaches that have been with him before. I think that's a good thing about Klopp, that he, he will sort of make his own judgments whilst obviously trying to inform himself with the information that's being fed up from, from the academy. So now, you know, Liverpool, they've got that sort of in, that, that perfect balance between, you know, not just signing the players that everybody knows about, but, but giving opportunities to some of the ones that people have heard less about as well. And I think that, that makes it very exciting for a lot of young players. I think in the past, maybe Liverpool, um, when they've said, look, there's a chance for you here, it's been difficult for them to have that argument because, you know, the, the, there hasn't been the evidence of that, whereas now there is that evidence. So if particularly if you're, you know, if you're a young attacking player, you know, we, t- we spoke about it last week with Salah, Mane and Firmino, all sorts of 28, 29, you know, sooner rather than later, you're going to have to be given a chance because I don't think that the manager can afford for those players to all become old at exactly the same time because that's when you have problems with um, rebuilding the next the next team. So I would think if he, if he Elliot sort of does things right and keeps himself clean, off the pitch, I think he's got a great chance. Well, he's one of a trio, isn't he, really? He comes in a almost little package with him, Curtis Jones and Nico Williams. They're the next best things, aren't they? They've had lots of, well, a fair amount of first-team experience, a lot of under-23 experience. They've played a fair deal of football this season, James. So what is the development for next season for those three? Yeah, well, I think those three will, will definitely all have bigger roles to play next season. I think, you know, th- th- this season has been a bit unique, hasn't it, in in many ways in terms of, you know, Klopp must have given probably 20-odd debuts out to, to, to youngsters just because of the scenarios with the with, with the domestic cup games and, you know, especially with, you know, what happened with the, the Shrewsbury replay falling in the Premier League and all rule break and, and even going back to that, the clash, of course, with the League Cup tight Villa and the Club World Cup in Qatar. So, you know, we're not going to see a situation like that again next season. But, you know, there's no doubt whatsoever that those three, uh, Harvey Elliott, Curtis Jones and Nico Williams, are, are, are the cream of that crop in terms of grasping the opportunities that have come their way this season. Um, and I know from you know re- researching the, the Harvey Elliott piece last week that Liverpool aren't planning on loaning out any of those three next season. You know, Klopp, mm. Klopp sees them as well and truly part of the setup. And you know, I think taking them each briefly in turn, Nico Williams has, has proved there's absolutely no need to go and buy a, a backup right back to Trent. You know, I think he has he's shown that he can he can fill in um, when required. And I think we'll see Nico get some minutes in the Premier League during these remaining nine games when, when football's back in a couple of weeks. And you know, the same with Curtis Jones and Harvey Elliott. I, I see them, you know, playing a part, certainly off the bench, if not starting games during the run-in. Because I think you look at it and, you know, someone like Adam Lallana, of course, was, is moving on in a few weeks. You've got Zerdan Shakiri who's expected to leave in, in search of a new challenge. So, you know, for players, like, it, it would be nonsensical, really, to to play those kind of players when you know you, Klopp will be looking to use the remaining games once the league title is secure to um, to learn more about these players for next season. But um, yeah, I'm I'm really excited to see how those three continue to develop because I think you know that they aren't. You know, sometimes players get thrown in, and you think you know we probably won't hear from these too many times again. 
um, but not with these three. You know, they. I think we've seen enough already over the course of this season to know that um, they, they certainly belong at Liverpool. All three of them, Simon, huge futures? I hope so, yeah. I mean, if, if they get everything right, as I say, off the pitch and stay clear of injuries, there's no reason why mm-hmm. not. I mean, I, I think, uh, you know, Curtis Jones, for me, this season has come on a huge amount. I mean, he... Um, there's a few question marks about him, you know, this time last year. Did he have sort of the maturity and temperament to really kick on, you know? And I think he, he looks like a footballer to me, you know? I think he really, really exciting player. I think Rian Brewster's had a, a bit of a strange season in the sense that, you know, he sort of had a really great pre-season, scored a few goals and then wasn't able to really get back in the team. When he did get that opportunity against Arsenal, there were probably other players that eclipsed his performance in that game. But since going to Swansea, scored, you know, a few goals and has, has really clicked there. So it's, it's a really exciting time, I think. You know, I think Klopp, you know, he doesn't just, it's not just wear empty, empty promises. I think if, if those players really do learn from the other players that they're training with as well, ultimately, they've got to be better than the players that they're replacing to, to get a chance and for this Liverpool team to progress. So the standard's incredibly high, but that's why, you know, Klopp places so much value in training and then I, I sort of wants the, the younger players to challenge the, the, the older players. So there's no better place for, for, for a young player at the moment because. If if they get any exposure to to the high level of training at Liverpool, and you know that that that's allowing them to learn the game at the very highest level, so I, I would think you know that the three of them between now and the end of the season will obviously Brewster will be playing for Swansea, but the other two will be getting games, and um, oh, sorry, three will be getting games for Liverpool, and then next season hopefully we'll see a bit more. Of them. Right, another fantastic piece on the Athletic website. You want to read the full uh, article on Harvey Elliott? Head to theAthletic.com forward slash Liverpool. Pod and uh, James gone in depth uh, on Harvey Elliott there. Shevchenko scored the winner two years ago. He's up against Duday. Will he hand Liverpool the European Cup? Yes! Yes! European champions! Jersey Duday with a penalty save. Right, uh, James Pearce, Simon Hughes, myself, Steve Hoversaw with the Red Agenda. Let's have a look at what's happening with uh, the Premier League season and the possibility of neutral ground. So we're, we're back to this one, James. Are we going to get a decision sometime soon as to what will happen <laughs> in terms of Liverpool's next fixture, which is against Everton, of course? Yeah, it's it, it seems to be a bit of a hot potato, doesn't it, that keeps on getting thrown around. It was It was there a few weeks back and then... Um, seemingly had gone back into the background, and then you know, with with the the Premier League meetings last week and the the restart date getting firmed up, um, it's suddenly suddenly kind of put back on the agenda, especially with the um, one of the police chiefs stating that um, you know they they'd flagged up I think a dozen games that they felt needed to be moved away from the venues you'd expect the games to be played and and to be moved to neutral venues, which you know that that included Liverpool's. Uh, Trips to, to of course to Goodison, to to Man City and to and to Newcastle, as well as potentially a home game, if if Liverpool uh, were, go- were going for the title on that particular day. So yeah, quite rightly, it's prompted a you know an angry reaction from from supporters. Um, I just I just find the whole thing ridiculous. Like us, you know, I, I spent most of the weekend just gone in in Sefton Park in South Liverpool and. 
you know, it was it was like being in Ibiza with you know th- you know thousands of people gr- grouped together, and you know anyone that's seen the pictures on social media from various beaches all over the place. Um, so yeah, this I just don't understand this idea that um, you know God, you know imagine how terrible it, it would be if if a small number of football fans decided to group outside a ground, you know. I just think it takes football fans for mugs as well because we we know full well that the vast vast majority of fans would listen to the the pleas from people like Klopp and senior players to stay away from Anfield. Um, so I really really hope common sense prevails. It, we know we know that you know ultimately the decision is going to be made by the safety advisory groups in all the different areas um, that are made up of kind of police fire ambulance local council officials fan groups as well because um yeah i think you know there's been enough talk about whether the integrity of the premier league is is damaged at all by having games behind closed doors and all the rest of it the last thing we we need i just think it's completely unnecessary to to use neutral venues it does seem a convenient media narrative, Simon, to sort of label Liverpool fans as, oh, you know, they're all going to go against what they've been asked to adhere to. As James says, I mean, I've been working on a story this week, which will be going out later this week, I would think. And it just seems to me that everybody, nobody, not many people really want to stick the neck out. And actually, other than the Mark Roberts, the guy from South Yorkshire Police, who's been pretty outspoken from day one about what football should do. Um, I mean, I remember at the start of the month, he created a few headlines saying that, you know, the Premier League clubs need to get a grip, you know, of... Of, of what's going on around them you know he seems to be to, 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 to sort of want to test the water with with, with, the, with his opinion and see whether he can gain any traction but the reality is you know he, he doesn't have any jurisdiction on how the decisions are made as James said it, it's sort of local authorities that make the decisions um, and let's have a right I, I suppose they're dealing with their uh, they, they are dealing with an unprecedented matter. Usually local authorities, which which give the safety certificates, will only be talking about stuff that happens inside the ground. And, you know, usually that relates to, to a non... Well, every other occasion for the last 100 years or however long they've been handing out certificates for games hasn't had, had to consider a pandemic going on around it. But as James says, I mean, it, it's just the double standards. I wrote about it a few weeks ago on The Athletic about how... It seems the football fans are treated differently to other sections of society. Um, I, I don't really understand. You know, it's the, it's the mixed messages that have come all the way down from the government that that just haven't helped. I mean, you know, if it's okay for a you know uh, uh, unelected government advisor to do what he's done and have no consequence, but yet even a small number of football fans turn up outside the ground and it's viewed as football fans as a whole, one living, breathing organism, not recognising that actually, you know, there could just be people who aren't necessarily massive football fans, massive match-going fans, you know, who, who just spend more time on the street, if that makes sense. You know, they might, it needs to be clarified exactly what a football fan is because, you know, do, do you have to have a match a season ticket to, to be classified as a football fan or do you have to be a regular to be a football fan? It just seems like now at the moment, anybody who turns up outside the football ground is going to be described as a football fan. I think it needs to be greater clarity than that. So inevitably one or two people will turn up outside the football ground as and when these matches happen but it doesn't mean that all football fans should be treated in the way that they tend mm. to in terms of the way things are written and, and described uh, as you say sometimes in sections of the media Steve 
But but Liverpool are hopeful, James, that a return to Anfield will be signed off um, after discussions with the police and the safety advisory group. Well, they they certainly believe it should be. I don't know whether hopeful is the, the, the right word because I think it's that they know full well that it's it's completely out of their hands. You know, I think, I think there were some suggestions about Premier League clubs voting on neutral venues, which you know that's that's not true. It's 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 you know the clubs just don't have the the, the power to. To, to say yes or no, as we said, it, you know, it is all in the hands of those safety advisory groups. So all Liverpool can do is make their representations. I think, you know, they've they've made it very clear that they would they would use their social media channels, they'd use the club media to, you know, and the, probably the media in in general to get their messages out there, and and that they they firmly believe that you know the vast vast majority of fans would adhere to that, and I agree with them. But yeah, I think they also know that. All they can do is put that case forward as strongly as possible, which is what they are doing, and then wait to find out what exactly what the outcome of of that is. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I just think it would be absolutely ridiculous to go down the neutral venues route, and I just think completely unnecessary. You know, even with even you take the Merseyside derby, you know, the Sky have announced that it's it's going to be on free to air on Freeview. Um, of course, none of the pubs are going to be open. So, you know, why are, why on earth would would people be gathering outside the ground? It just doesn't make any sense to me. Would you get a handful of idiots who might still do it? Potentially. But, you know, we're talking about a very, very small minority. And certainly I don't think it's enough of an issue to, to warrant taking the games away from where they should be played. Let's get to the biggest issue of the show, which is what James brought home from the Wonder a year ago. We're celebrating the one-year anniversary of number six. Simon, did you did you take anything from the stadium before we get to James? Was there something you needed as a memento of Liverpool's sixth European I, I Cup? Came, I came home with um, a very bruised ankle. That's that's about okay. it, really. Um, but that wasn't necessarily from the from the ground itself because I, I know we spoke about press games last week I don't know whether you want to get into what happened in the seconds <laughs> press game but after, after the uh, we'll, we'll do that in a minute so you had another yeah, one of those I, I had a very heavily bruised ankle from, from the Champions League final last All year right. so that was your memento uh, I was in the stadium I didn't have, find anything that I could take with me but somehow James Pierce came home with um, an invaluable uh, piece of the night what was it James <laughs> <laughs> yes, I am the the fortunate owner of. Uh, I'm pretty sure it is it is almost a, the the part of the net where uh, where Origi's uh, where Origi's goal um, and ended up in. Um, what the exact contact yeah, point? Was, <laughs> well, it, it can't be it can't be far off. It, it, it's around that area. Certainly that corner. Yeah, and I've also I must admit I've in a little in a little bag. I've also got some grass and some ticker tape. So that silver ticker tape from the uh, from the from the podium. Which one of these days I'll get it all put in a nice frame. But yeah, the the net the net story was actually. I mean, obviously it was. It turned out to be my last game covering Liverpool for the for the Echo, and and obviously I think after a night like that, we, we were working until essentially the, the UEFA officials were throwing us out the the stadium, which by that point must have been half one in the morning, probably I think maybe even two o'clock in the morning um, Spanish time. And uh, we hadn't even recorded our podcasts, and they, and they said we couldn't stay in the media room. So we ended up walking down this ramp, and where all these stewards had been earlier on in the evening, of course, they'd all got off home. So we ended up just walking straight out onto the pitch. 
So me and the other guys from the Echo recorded this 40-minute podcast, just sat in the center circle and seemed to be no one else around. And then as, as, we, as we finished up and went to walk off, I noticed there was this guy in the net at that end where Origi was, um, had obviously scored the, 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 the final clinching goal. And um, he, he, had a, he had like a big Stanley knife in his hand. And I asked him what on earth he was doing. And he said, oh, I'm just, just cutting, up, cutting out some chunks of this net to give to mates of mine back home in Barcelona who are big Liverpool fans. And he said, uh, would you like one? So, uh, so yeah, thanks very much. So, um, so yeah, tucked it in my laptop bag, and uh, and it and uh, it made it managed to make it back to Liverpool. And why not? If it pride of place in your house, I think we're all partial to a little bit of acceptable thievery. I remember in two thousand and five, the late great Phil Easton, who used to be Liverpool's match day announcer, we went to Istanbul together, and at the end of the game, he went into the the bowels of um, the Atatürk Stadium and brought back up what was a life size. Um, signage, piece of signage, which was outside the Liverpool dressing room. I said, what are you going to do with that? He said, I'm going to take it on the plane home with me. I remember him coming through <laughs> through the airport with this huge hoarding and uh, bless him. I think it's just a temptation, isn't it, Simon, to have a little piece of something from the day? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I genuinely, I'm going to be sound like really boring here, but I never took anything. I think I was just like totally sort of taken away by the the night itself. I mean, a bit like it was my last game for the uh, work and covering for the uh, independence that night. And um, you know, on a personal level, without getting too uh, self-indulgent, you know, it was sort of, a, a, I guess, some sort of a, a career high for me. You know, to, to be able to to cover Liverpool winning the Champions League. It's like everybody has a reason why they, they want to go into journalism and obviously mm. follow football and and, and and get involved in the first place and you know you sort of dream at the beginning of being able to cover your team at a Champions League final I just remember that night I mean I wasn't I, I, I never worked quite as hard as James to be fair I mean James James was beaving away till God knows when as he says and uh, I, I was out in Madrid by by about one one a.m. So um, having a few beers and it was just just a party atmosphere. Really. I mean, all, all the Tottenham fans were great as well. Like, I remember being in a bar and singing singing Tottenham songs with the Tottenham fans. Loads of Liverpool fans in there. It was just a really really brilliant weekend. It was. Let, let's reflect on what it meant and um, and the night itself. Fabulous venue, I, th- I thought. I mean, if you if you think back to the Wonder, although the, the subway was absolutely nowhere near it. I don't know how you got to it, James, but um, <laughs> I, I wasn't working. I was there as a fan, and, and the walk from the subway to the stadium was, was a good mile at least. Um, it's not, <laughs> yeah, not exactly served by public transport. <laughs> can, I, yeah, can I be controversial? Can I, sorry, can I be controversial? I didn't quite like it as much, you know, as, as other people. I don't know why. I, th- I think it was partly because the, I kept on thinking about the Calderon and how central that was and, like, how connected to the city it felt was the new grounds. It was like you're, you're out in the middle of the desert, more or less, weren't you? That was why it was so hot, I think. I mean, it was, it was blisteringly hot at kickoff time, wasn't it? Nine, nine o'clock at night. It was. I think that contributed towards sort of the pace of the game, amongst a lot of other things, I suppose. Hmm. But what did you think of it as a venue, James? I absolutely loved it. I know, I know, I know it was a bit out of out of town and in the middle of nowhere, as Simon said. But the actual stadium itself, I thought, was was absolutely stunning. And yeah, just you know what? Though, just thinking about it now, though, there's some a couple of, that, those few days in Madrid are definitely up there with the best in my life in terms of just everything, everything about it. You know, the the atmosphere, as Simon said, the, the Tottenham fans contributed to that. I didn't see, you know, we went out in Madrid um, the, the night before. And then, of course, 
after after the game finally when we got back into town and just a, a really nice atmosphere everyone enjoying themselves obviously the weather was unbelievable um and then yeah an absolute you know professional career high in terms of been able to write about Liverpool lifting the the European Cup, especially after all the near misses as well, and you know how the, the you know the the heartaches of going close in 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 previous years. So um, yeah, I'd say the only the only downside of the trip for me was the Echo had booked me on flights uh, via Casablanca. <laughs> that that was slightly soul destroying on the way home. Um, very hungover, desperate to just get home. Um, and then, yeah, spending four hours waiting in Casablanca Airport and then realising I've actually gone a long, long way in the opposite direction to then get a connecting I, flight back to Manchester. I, I had three planes one way and four the other way. It, wow. it was that ridiculous. <laughs> I I went to Alicante, to Mallorca, to Dublin, and then eventually to Manchester Airport. But but I think that was the, that was the story, the narrative for a lot of people, Simon, wasn't it? I mean, you think to yourself, yeah. Spain must be easy to get to. It just wasn't. Yeah, yeah. well, I mean, I, I had a similar, I mean, I had a, quite a similar experience in that I flew to Bordeaux um, and then got a train down to San Sebastian, had a night out in San Sebastian with a, a friend of mine, Tim Abraham, who um, he travelled back from Ecuador for this game uh, and then went to Bilbao, had a night in Bilbao, got the train down to Madrid, so it took, it took me four, I think three or four nights to get there. And then on the way back, went back via Granada, you know, and, and flew home to Manchester via an, another night in Granada. So it was it was quite a long period of time away for one game of football, I suppose. But it was absolutely brilliant. I mean, I wouldn't change any elements of it. I think that's all part of the fun, the travel. And, it, you know, it's, it's a great country to travel through Spain. And as, as James says, I mean, it just got me thinking there about like sort of in the lead up to that final, there was a lot of talk about... You know, two English clubs going to Madrid and the fear in Madrid about like sort of the English invaders, if you, if you can call you know people from Liverpool English, I'm not sure, but you know that this idea that the, the whole city was going to be consumed by you know big fan bases and lots of warnings about how people would act, and it was absolute opposite. You know, great mm. camaraderie between both sets of supporters, mixing, mingling all the way through the game, uh, all the way before before and after the game, and that was a real high for me, just sort of really remarkable that most football supporters are really sound actually and, and don't get involved in this sort of boring banter off that people tend to have on social media you know it just wasn't like that at all between Liverpool and Tottenham that weekend and I think you know a lot of the Tottenham fans afterwards were saying you know you you guys have been really magnanimous in, in victory I'm just glad Liverpool didn't lose we didn't know how it might react otherwise but but I think I think you know people were were great that weekend just a, a great city a great football city Madrid absolutely love Madrid and I think to win to win a final there, you know, it just it just sounds right, doesn't it? I think you know, in line with Rome and Istanbul and all the other great cities where Liverpool have have triumphed in the past. It was sensational the way they they hosted it. Two, two English teams with very different objectives, really, because if you think back to it now and the amount of pressure that was placed on Jurgen's shoulders, given the the finals that hadn't gone his way, and for Spurs simply getting to the final. I think was probably good enough without that. I mean, that sounds a little bit demeaning, but actually the, the reality is I think they probably surpassed their expectations. That, that's fair enough to say, James, isn't it? Oh, yeah, 100%. And I think it, it was... It, I remember the, the build-up to it. I was really, really confident, probably until the, the day before when 
you're actually sat in the stadium and you're you're there for the pre-match press conferences. And it, I remember that kind of hitting me, the kind of feeling. You know, imagine if Liverpool didn't win this, because you know, for Tottenham had you know they were almost where Liverpool had been 12 months earlier in terms of surpassing expectations. No one really expecting them to to get to the final. Whilst for Liverpool, they'd been there the year before. They'd they'd had the you know the crushing heartache of what was you know getting 97 points in the Premier League and getting pipped to the title by Manchester City and you know there was always that nagging little doubt in my mind of how do they respond to that and you know heaven forbid if if it doesn't turn out if it goes wrong how does this team pick themselves up from another you know devastating near miss so yeah there was a huge amount of pressure on Liverpool going into that game you know and that made what then happened in in on that night all the more special and i think we saw on the field i think we saw the development of of that team under Klopp as well in terms of obviously absolute dream start with the the penalty in the opening stages that that Mo Salah tucked away but you know Simon touched upon the heat there and you know i think anyone who wasn't in the stadium that night it's difficult to just put into words just how stifling it was um and energy sapping and i thought i thought liverpool were brilliant at controlling the game. Certainly, probably about an hour, an hour or so after they scored, and then and then Tottenham had a spell. And you know, it wouldn't be a Liverpool major final, would it, if we weren't put through the ringer for for a certain period? But um, you know, that was when Alison Becker really came to the fore. You know, what a contrast to to, to the final of the previous year when when the lack of a world class goalkeeper had cost Liverpool so dearly. You know, Alison kept Tottenham at bay, and then. Just yeah, I, I just think about that outpouring of emotion when uh, when Origi drilled that shot into the bottom corner because uh, you know then it was party time. You 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 knew you knew that there was uh, there was no way back for Tottenham from then. Wonderful, wonderful moments. I think it's massively underplayed tactically. How good Jurgen Klopp got it that night, Simon? Yeah, I agree. I think I remember in the in the week before the game we, we had the the press day at Melwood and. He said it a couple of times. He said it, I think, in the open section in front of the cameras and then sort of expanded upon the idea uh, with, with the sort of the written media away from the cameras. And he said that, you know, the team that reacts to, you know, sort of a bad thing happening or a bit of bad luck, the best will win. I think he haven't haven't seen, you know, what happened to Liverpool in, in Kiev a, a year earlier where literally everything sort of that could go wrong did go wrong. He realised, you know, if we... You know, if we if we just minimise our mistakes, then we've got a great chance. I mean, Liverpool are a better team than Tottenham, and Provandi handled the occasion. You know, I always had confidence that Liverpool would win, but I just sort of a bit like James on the day of the game, a lot of nerves really because you sort of you you can just imagine what the reaction would be like if England, if Liverpool lost, particularly to another English club. But I, I think that after after Tottenham made that. You know, the, the mistake in the first minute, and which led to the penalty. And it was a mistake and it was a penalty. You know, they, they were shell-shocked and, and really struggled the first half. And, I mean, if you're being critical, you could say Liverpool maybe could have gone for the throat a little bit more. But I think it was just... Liverpool gave a very solid defensive performance that night. You know, made made sure that the, the, the mistakes were kept to a minimum. I mean, I remember Virgil van Dijk sort of kicking the ball out of touch a few times just to not relieve pressure, but just almost keep the ball off the pitch so Tottenham couldn't get any momentum. I remember James Milner doing something very similar when he came on as a sub and it was just a really good professional performance and I remember after the game you know the Trent was being questioned on the pitch about like you know it wasn't a great game but 
doesn't matter, does it? Nobody remembers the performance. It's it, it's all about the results in the final. And for me, you know, it was it was, it was just a brilliant way to end off uh, to, to round off the season, which you know I'd threatened you know to be you know arguably Liverpool's greatest season, you know, certainly in modern times. You know, then threatened to be you know a really demoralising way to finish the season and to finish it on the high of winning the Champions League. It just lasted throughout the summer really it was a glorious summer and even talking about it now it sort of makes me you know sad that football isn't we should be celebrating now but at least I suppose we've got a bit of football to look forward to over the next few weeks and hopefully that'll finish up with Liverpool um, Liverpool finishing the job in the Premier League because let's not forget you know the 25 points ahead you know they, they, they've done that I think based on the experience of, of, of Madrid where you know they, they've they've learned that you can win football matches another way and 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 you don't always have to go gung-ho you've got the ability to be able to, sorry they've got the ability to to see out matches a different way and that's what's really impressed me about Liverpool this season so it's a really really important victory in Liverpool's history because there haven't been very many cup finals I think where Liverpool have just been solid and won and deservedly won and that, that was certainly one of them Yeah, my, my favourite moments are the aftermath of the game not the football itself the, the, the playlist and the players all you know charging towards the fans and raising the trophy whether that be Jordan Henderson or Jordan Shakir, very much sort of a collective thing at that moment and the booming out Salisbury Hill by Peter Gabriel and you know that that, yeah. that just felt like a massive party at the end of it all didn't it whoever got whoever did the playlist got it absolutely nailed on at the end of that game <laughs> do you know what I, I remember sat there and you just wanted to soak it up didn't you every yeah. single second of it and in the in the back of my head, I'm thinking you really should have your head down and your laptop. Here. But you, I couldn't. Do <laughs> but then it's, it's one of those days where, like, you do feel torn between <laughs> between what you should be doing professionally and what you actually want want to be doing, which is just just soaking it, it all up. Because you, you're right, there were so many special moments after the game, and you know, you, I think about you know the emotion that Jordan Henderson showed, and of course that embrace with his dad. Mm. Um, you know, I think to there was a great moment during the celebrations when Trent just turned and charged towards the Liverpool end behind that goal. And, you know, it was, and, and just the roar that accompanied that, you know, the sight of a, of a young boy who'd grown up very close to Melwood and, you know, his dream coming true. And um, yeah, and it, it just, you only have to look through that Liverpool team that, that won it that night. And, so many fantastic backstories in terms of you know the hurdles that they've cleared and the adversity they'd faced to get where they are, um, and then you know the and the other thing that when I think about that is I also think about you know that it comes back to the attention to detail. I remember speaking to Pep Linders about the training camp they had in Marbella before the final when you know him and Klopp had been talking about you know we need a friendly against a team that plays like Tottenham, you know, that we need to, we need to ensure that, that tactically we're, we're absolutely spot on for this. And, you know, he, he did his homework lined up, you know, they played, played this friendly behind closed doors against Benfica B who agreed to play a 4-2-3-1, the same as Tottenham and, and all the rest of it. So it was, you know, there was, there was so much work that went into that. And, um, and then, you know, it was, it was just fantastic to see so many good people, that you know had put so much into it and get the rewards that night. Just makes you want to do it all again, doesn't it? Oh, boys, we could go on on that one, but we've got to call time on it. That was the Red Agenda. Thank you, Simon. Thank you, Steve. And uh, James, as always, a brilliant piece online about Harvey Elliott. Check that one out. Thank you, James. Cheers, Steve. And the Red Agenda returns in a week's time. (laughs) 